Hello and welcome to Advocate, a podcast channel by ASEAN Parliamentarian for Human Rights or APHR where we focus on discussing some of the most pressing issues across Southeast Asia. In our latest series, which we are calling Restricting Diversity, we will sit light on the issues and challenges concerning freedom of religion or belief and how religious minorities and women's rights are subsequently affected across the region. My name is Luluk Nurhamida, a member of Parliament from Indonesia and APHR's member. Today, I am joined by four guests who will share their insights, experience, and expertise on how their communities are being impacted by issues including child marriage, female genital mutilation, anti-abortion laws, and divorce, and how women in particular are impacted when government attempt to make decisions about their bodily autonomy. While religion has played an integral role in shaping many of the cultures and customs of the countries in Southeast Asia, its instrumentalization has also caused social disruption, classes of communities, and also violence. Many governments in the region also resort to repressive laws to exercise control over the practice of religions or belief, prosecutes religious minorities and restricts people's rights to freedom of religions and belief. So we will begin in Malaysia. But once the document indicates that you are Muslim, you have a big problem. Theoretically, you can change that, but you have to go to Sharia court. And from experience and from my own observation, it is next to impossible for the Sharia court to say, ah, you are non-Muslim. Malaysia is a multicultural, multilingual, and multi-religious country, home to 32.7 million people and dozens of ethnic groups and religions. Religious impacts on decisions and women's issues are often neglected in the context of faith. We're fortunate today to have an incredibly knowledgeable and well-spoken guest to start us off. Hi, my name is Farah Rom. I am from the For Youth Initiative Kuala Lumpur, FYIKL. It's a, an initiative for the young people in Malaysia, mainly discussing on youth empowerment in the field of sexual reproductive health and rights. The advocacy and awareness work of FYIKL captures a lot of discussion on religion, because it acknowledges that people make decisions based on their faith and beliefs through storytelling campaigns and awareness raising. Farah, I'm wondering if you can expand on this a little bit more. What is the relationship like between religion and women's rights in Malaysia? The issues that surround SRHR, sexual reproductive health rights for short, always involves the matter of um, whether it is allowed in their own religions or their own beliefs. And it, it, it is not only for Muslims, uh, it also expands to like people, um, especially like Christianity, when it comes to discussion on abortion, right? For example, and contraception, actually. I, I believe this is a very important issue that is always neglected when it comes to um, people of faith because um, they feel like it is against their beliefs, for example, to opt for contraception or opt for abortion. Why is it so important to be receptive to different values and opinions? especially religion, and how does it specifically impact women and girls? 
sexual reproductive health and rights is really a pressing issue among women and girls because the consequences of not realizing this it continues the, the vicious cycle continues from one from one age to another for example when we talk about teenage pregnancy if we don't address teenage pregnancy in the religious based group for example they always demonize people who have sex they demonize people uh, for making certain decisions or the things or situations that happens to women and girls right Farah, can you speak more to the cases you mentioned specifically related to sexual reproductive health rights or abortion? What cases are important to analyze and observe? I work in a clinic, a women's clinic previously, and I had several encounters with different women, uh, different girls who needed the safe abortion services. And there is one particular case that I've seen myself uh, where a wife of uh, a man with three children already. And that wife uh, has gone through around three cesarean births. And by medical perspective, you shouldn't go through the next one because um, it will be detrimental to your health. This person has a conflicting thought when it comes to deciding to get a safe abortion service because one thing is not understanding her own uh, religion. uh, And she's actually a Muslim. And she felt really conflicted when it comes to um, deciding to terminate the pregnancy, although it's because of their health. And this is stemmed from the idea that we should continue the pregnancy uh, regardless or, you know, uh, safe abortion is something that you shouldn't even opt for. People talk about the fetus rights and all that. And this is also the idea of why is she in the position is because also the husband themselves didn't allow the decision of wearing contraception in the first place. When a certain option is taken out based on faith and based on religion, or I can say misinterpretation of religion, it really takes away the decision uh, that we are supposed to make as an individual and the decision that is best for us. Farah, what types of laws exist in Malaysia that specifically target women and girls? There are several laws actually targeting uh, sexual reproductive health rights for women and girls. But these laws uh, are more, for example, when it comes to safe abortion, there are a safe abortion section where they mention about who can go through uh, safe abortion in Sharia law. But it's really uh, limited towards those who are violated, for example, incest or rape. It's permissible. But actually, there's a lot more interpretation that says it's actually okay to have a safe abortion before 12 weeks, uh, things like that. And when you have a limitation in terms of um, the the service delivery, especially for Muslims, right? People tend to see access to health uh, for women is allowed when they are violated instead of when they need it. For example, for economic reason, for their own mental health health well-being. Because in our penal code, actually, the safe abortion law is in the penal code uh, 312, section 312, that mentions about it is permissible for a doctor with good faith to perform safe abortion to an individual without any permission from anyone, only for a medical doctor that is registered. So our uh, civil law is actually pretty progressive, but there are limitations in terms of um, the perception of when it comes to Sharia law, whether it's allowed or not. And this really, uh, it's really vague. And a lot of the preachers, right, they don't want to condone the act, for example. So kind of influence the thinking of the mass. Our next guest is Rosanna Isa, who has been the executive director of the organization Sisters in Islam for the last 16 years. 
The work of Sisters in Islam, it's an organization that has been established for 35 years in Malaysia. Uh, we work basically on promotion and the advancement of Muslim women's rights, focusing on Muslim women's rights in the family. But having said that, because we are also working with regards to um, women's rights overall, issues that we come across that have, whether there's a conflicting or competing jurisdictions, then it's something that we also take an interest to look at. Rosanna, can you tell us more about who is affected when the interpretation of religious laws is not inclusive in Malaysia? So you have some offences that are available in some states and some offences that are not regarded as uh, Sharia crime in other states. So already, you know, there are differences in the ways that these laws are governing Muslims. And then, of course, the way these laws also touch on minority communities, for example, the LGBTIQs, and particularly those who are affected are the ones who are more visible in terms of their gender identities, for example, like the um, transgender communities. How do Sisters in Islam specifically analyze and look at these laws from a gendered lens? And how are they classified as discriminatory? We we look at um, how, for example, these laws are actually enacted and then implemented. And then how these laws are also, for example, further amended to include very, very vague criminal offenses, for example, like taking part in what what you would say like black magic. So yeah, it becomes very, you know, how like on what grounds have they amended these laws? These are really essentially crimes that are against the religion, but you make it a you know crime against the state because you know it's the state that that that's enforcing all these laws. Rosanna, it seems that based on what you were saying, that vulnerable groups can become a target for the religious authorities to sort of set an example, if you will, about what happens if the general public doesn't adhere to the status quo or what is traditionally accepted within Islam. Do you mind giving another example? So, for example, in the offense of committing close proximity or khalwat, where an unmarried couple staying together or in a hotel room together, they are not married, that's actually a crime. That's uh, um, an official Sharia crime. But they would conduct raids, you know, religious authorities would conduct raids of lower class hotels because there will be reporting. Thank you for the examples, Rosanna. You have said that Islam has been used as a political tool in Malaysia for nearly four decades. Can you expand on what you mean by this and how so? There is this fact that, you know, if a fatwa is gazetted, meaning it is signed by the religious authorities and the the head uh, religion in the state, meaning the sultan, then it has the force of law. And therefore, if you violate it, then, you know, actions can be taken against you for violating the fatwa. So I just want to share that for Sisters in Islam, there is a fatwa uh, that was issued against us in, in July 2014, which we discovered 
in October 2014, and we were just left with 10 days to file a judicial review to the civil court to say that, you know, this fatwa really is unconstitutional and therefore should not be enforced. And we are still in court, you know, trying to defend ourselves with regards to that fatwa. So why go through all this effort to try and silence groups like Sisters in Islam? What do you think the end goal is for them? It's about the control of women, you know, about women's dressing, you know, whether women can take part in beauty pageants, whether women can, you know, wear certain kind of clothing or cannot wear certain kind of clothing or must wear certain kind of clothing. It has already seeped into the cultural practices and the way we relate to one another. So, and and this is where it becomes even more difficult to separate because it essentially becomes the way you think about the other. Rosanna, what options exist for people, particularly women, who want to leave the Islamic faith if they so choose? Article 11 in the federal constitution basically acknowledges that, you know, there is freedom of religion and therefore, you know, everybody can practice their faith as it is. However, there is no freedom to choose or freedom of belief when it comes to Muslims. If I'm a born Muslim, I do not have the option to leave Islam and profess another faith. Lastly, Rosanna, I just want to ask you if you think there has been any type of change, generationally speaking, in terms of how young people are interpreting religious laws in Malaysia. There is this set of audience, the younger audience that potentially that are there for us to reach out to. They are much more, for one of a better word, that word woke. They are aware about how religion is being utilized by parties who or interest groups, you know, for their own advantage. Yet at the same time, we are also aware that, you know, religious conservatism has really, really seeped into the minds and consciousness of the general public. And therefore, how do we win hearts and minds? We really have to figure out ways to be able to do that, to speak in the way that they would be compelled to listen to us. It's more of uh, strengthening the family, strengthening the marriage. Ang kasagotan dito, divorce is not uh, the ultimate answer to make a couple happy. Do you think that you can be completely free without divorcing? <laughs> I feel like I'm in jail. We now move to the Philippines, a country deemed the most gender equal in Southeast Asia by several United Nations reports. However, there remain gaps in the laws that must go further in protecting women. Sharing with us her expertise and experience is our next guest, Kong Emmy De Jesus. My name is Emmy De Jesus. I was a former member of the House of Representatives in the Philippines. I had my three term from 2010 to 2019. Now, I am the elected chairperson of our party list, the only party list representing the women's sector in the House of Representatives. 
Let's start with the report that was released by the group Girls Not Brides, which stated that the Philippines had recorded the highest number of child brides. What are your thoughts on this? Actually, even before the popularization, quote unquote, of this phenomenon, traditionally, even the start of 1900 or, uh, or 20th century, many reports already you know, have been documented or cases have been documented. Women really are practicing very early marriages. And in fact, if we were to question our grandmothers no, uh, and ask them how young were they when they got married, most of them were below 18 years old. I think uh, through the times, a lot of factors no, contributed to this phenomenon. And I would say that it is a combination of various factors, including economic and uh, most especially socio-cultural. And when we say child marriage, of course, there is already the discriminatory uh, practice or data that it is more, no? Uh, the numbers who are into young marriages uh, are dominantly women. That's really interesting, Kongami. I'm wondering if beyond economic reasons, if there are any other suggestions you have on why so many young women enter marriage at a young age in the Philippines. What was happening really, no, on the ground because of the, especially in the current situation right now, where there are no immediate access to health, to employment, uh, young marriages are more are more not productive and in fact result to very risky relationships. And uh, I think like to add that the during the pandemic, the lack of activities that can hone the potentials of the minors uh, contributed to young marriages. Coupled with exposure to media, using gadgets. On a positive note, in response to the endemic of child brides, Congress in the Philippines passed an anti-child marriage law at the end of 2022. Kongemi, how do you think this law will help to protect girls and women in the future? I would say this is a landmark uh, law. Can you imagine ano, legislating a law uh, prohibiting the practice of child marriage and imposing penalties for violators. The Republic Act 11596, I would say it's not easily passed because even during my term, I, I just would like to emphasize the participation of uh, Muslim of women coming from the indigenous sectors that they really are. They really are very much into pushing for the passage of this law. And I have had so many fora and uh, discussions with various groups. And um, because according to their law, uh, girls can marry at, at a very young age of 12, while boys can marry at the age of 15. And uh, a majority of uh, Muslim groups whom I have met during my term really pushed for the passage of this law. We are also hopeful that young girls and women in the Philippines will see more of their rights protected through this law. When it comes to women's sexual and reproductive health, what is the current situation in the Philippines and what challenges do you think need to be addressed? I would say as a legislator, 
uh, one of our concerns is to appropriate more funds, not only for direct services, but more especially on public information and education campaign in regards to issues addressing uh, reproductive health. For example, in our experiences, ano, uh, Gabriela Women, uh, Women's Party, uh, we realized that in the not only in the rural, no, but most especially in the rural, even in urban centers, there are still uh, supposedly agencies and persons of authorities who should know who should know about uh, laws and issues no concerning repro health, but apparently because of the lack of push and the lack of budget to you know make a very efficient program uh, at the first level of information and public uh, education, there should already be some kind of unification in regards to concrete services. There is a very limit, limited access. Our next guest is also from the Philippines. We welcome Member of Parliament, Risa Ontiveros. With regards to women's rights in the Philippines, what do you think is the significance of the passing of important legislation which protects them? As you know, just this year, the Philippines passed the Prohibition of Child Marriage Act, which penalizes any person who causes, fixes, facilitates, or arranges a child marriage. When I sponsored this measure in the Senate, I remember sharing the story of Fatima, a Muslim girl who was only 14 when she was compelled to marry a distant cousin eight years her senior. Her family is one of the many victim survivors of the war in Marawi, a city in the southern part of the Philippines, leaving them with almost nothing. And why is this law in particular so significant? What kind of impacts do you expect this to have on women and children and their protection? Fatima's story is just one of the many stories we've heard from child rights advocates and networks on the ground. So yes, the 2017 Philippine National Demographic and Health Survey saying that one in six Filipino girls are married before the legal age of majority is not unfounded. There is both anecdotal and empirical data that would affirm this. With the Philippines still reeling from the global health and economic crises, many more girls may be coerced to marry. Humanitarian organizations Save the Children even reported that due to the pandemic, 2.5 million girls may be at risk of marriage by 2025. Thank you so much, Senator Risa. It's been an incredible series of conversation with our guests. Thank you all for sharing your thoughts, ideas, and experiences. Policymakers and leaders in ASEAN need to understand the right to freedom of religion and belief and take steps to ensure its full realization for the benefit of their people, particularly for women and young girls. Doing so will strengthen peace, promote a culture of human rights and also diversity, and of course contribute to good governance, gender equality development, and the rule of law. 
That's why we have a new report called Restricting Diversity. It's a map legislation on freedom of religions or belief in Southeast Asia. Please visit our website at asianmp.org to learn more about APHR's continued effort to ensure that incidents of religious intolerance become outliers rather than a harmful new normal. You can also access the report in the link in this podcast episode's description. Thank you, of course, for listening to this episode of Advocate. And please subscribe for more unique insights on human rights issues in Southeast Asia from ASEAN Parliamentarian for Human Rights. This episode was written and produced by Mikey Quadrini with editorial input from Lola Lofaita. The International Panel of Parliamentarians for Freedom of Religions or Belief also support APHR's works on this topic. Future episodes of this series will be available in the coming weeks. Thank you.